I wanted to take a break from politics and current events and do something similar to what I did last year. So if the Bible and Jesus kind of makes you uncomfortable, trigger warning, it's on the way. It's the Adrian Slade Show. The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slade Show. So last year I decided to kind of take a dive into all things related to Christ. Not just the birth of Christ, but just the whole significance from beginning to end. It's something my pastor does for the Christmas service. He doesn't just go through the birth of Christ. He kind of wraps it all together. And there was also some aspects of something uh, a former uh, teacher within our church also did bringing up the significance of some of the details. And I kind of put that together last year. I'm going to do something similar to on this show, on this episode, except I'm going to expand it a bit more. There's some other uh, things that I didn't bring up that, that really kind of dovetail and make things more rich. It, it really kind of shows you the legitimacy of Christ. It shows you the, the weight and the depth and the, the realness of his life and the significance behind all the, all of the details that we see. And I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. In fact, the only book or the only study I did in college that had anything to do with religion was the study of the life of uh, the apostle Paul, which I highly recommend. It's amazing that that guy, you know, they always make him out to be this guy. He's got there persecuting Christians. Well, he was doing it because he thought they were blasphemers. He was well-versed in Scripture, and he was a, a great orator. Not only that, he was a Roman citizen who was also a Jew. <laughs> I mean, there's so many aspects. Every time they would throw him in jail, they'd have to go off to the side and scratch their head and go, ah, we really can't keep this guy in here um, because even though we despise him, we don't like what he's preaching, he's still a Roman citizen. You know, it's like there was certain – he had all the aspects. So when it clicked in his head when Christ appeared before him and said, hey – Get your stuff together. You're, you're attacking the people you're supposed to be uh, furthering and blinded him. You know, he came back uh, after being mentored to be this, you know, I mean, he wrote majority of the New Testament. I mean, he's a very important uh, figure. So uh, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a youth pastor. I'm not a theologian, but I do research. I like doing research and I've really come to, uh, learn some amazing things that I want to at least provide you uh, going into the Christmas season, because I think it's going to really be impactful when you see things, you know, you see atheists that are mocking Christianity and they're like, oh, your sky God was born in a manger, uh, a bunch of shepherds around, you know, and, and you're like, there's significance to each detail. And it really will blow your mind about how these details all come together. And the thing that you have to realize is, you know, Jesus is God and he, the Holy Spirit, three in one. Um, what's really incredible is the fact that he puts it out there in the very beginning. In first John, I mean, it starts as saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So the truth of the Bible was right there with him. And the word was God. So God is truth. This one was in the beginning with God. Who is this one? That's Jesus. So in John, he's basically putting it out there right from the get-go. We start out the gate knowing that Christ was there from the very beginning. And so that really kind of makes a lot of, it's very important to know that. I mean, he wasn't just somebody that we figured out and was brought into the picture later. You know, God didn't say, well... (laughs) Those daggone humans down there screwed everything up. Let me, let me get my son to go down there and fix all this mess. He was there in the beginning. And so when we celebrate Christ's birth, first thing that happens is people always want to debunk it and say, well, you know, Jesus was born. He wasn't born on December 25th. 
You know, I mean, look, all these different aspects of the seasons and, and things would place it at a different time frame. Well, why do we celebrate Christmas in December? Well, from what I've learned, the origins of the holiday and its December date lie in the ancient Greco-Roman world. As commemorations probably began sometime in the second century, there are at least three possible origins for the December date. The Roman Christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus dated Jesus' conception to March 25th, the same date upon which he held that the world was created, which after nine months in his mother's womb would result in, at a December 25th date. In the third century, the Roman Empire, which at the time had not adopted Christianity, celebrated the rebirth of the unconquered sun, or Sol Invictus, on December 25th. This holiday not only marked the return of longer days after the winter solstice, but also followed the popular Roman festival called Saturnalia, during which people feasted and exchanged gifts. It was also the birthday of the Indo-European deity Mithra, a god of light and loyalty whose cult was, at the time, growing in popularity among Roman soldiers. The church in Rome began formally celebrating Christmas on December 25th in 336 AD during the reign of Emperor Constantine. As Constantine has made Christianity the effective religion of the empire, some have speculated that choosing this date had the political motive of weakening the established pagan celebrations, which we're going to get into Baal. We're going to get into some of the paganism that we're still witnessing today, whether it be uh, the fashion designer uh, Balenciaga that was putting children up there with, you know, holding teddy bears in bondage suits and, and spelling Balenciaga with B-A-A-L, representing Baal, or maybe it's the abortion activists, the, the ardent abortion supporters, not all of them, but the ones that are just cult-like, and how that mirrors, you know, Moloch, who people offered up their children to, as sacrifices, and in turn hopefully got a good feast or a good, a good uh, harvest that year. And so we're still witnessing these type of pagan celebrations and pagan worship even today. But there's some in interesting uh, ties that we'll get into here in just a moment. So basically, they speculated that the political mo motive of weakening the established pagan celebrations was the reason the date was not widely accepted in Eastern uh, Empire, where January 6th had been favored, for another half century, and Christmas did not become a major Christian festival until the ninth century. So that's why we celebrate on the 25th. It was a way to def deflect and de deflate the paganism that was happening at the time. So now there's four Gospels that celebrate the birth and the teachings of Christ and his death. Um, Matthew, of course, was the first. It was written for people familiar with the Old Testament, both the Law of Moses and the Prophets. And we get into specific examples of a few of these. And it, the book of Matthew establishes the kingdom of heaven, a divine man as Christ would be, and Matthew presents Christ as king. Now, Mark was written for a more wider audience. It wasn't focused on the uh, Jews and the Law of Moses this gospel focuses on Jesus' role as the suffering servant and son of God. And while other gospels contain long discourses and sermons of Jesus, Mark is about action. The book symbolizes a winged lion, and Mark presents Christ as the servant. Now, Luke is the one that we go to a lot because it is historical. It is a journalistic gospel. Luke actually went around, interviewed people. He wanted to get the complete telling from day one up until the death. Of Christ. And actually, Luke is the one who wrote Acts, the beginning of the uh, start of the New Testament after the Gospels. And Luke, being a doctor, he was very meticulous with his details. And he spent a lot of time interviewing uh, Mary, too, which is where he got a good chunk of his information. Um, it's a thorough account of the episodes in Jesus's life arranged in chronological order. This Gospel was written to establish believers in the teachings of Christ. Its symbol is a winged ox. And Luke is presented, uh, presenting Christ as man. Now, gospel of John is the pervasive gospel. That's why we talked about in the beginning, the word was with God, the word was God. He, you know, is 
with God. John is the one that shows Christ as God. It's written to show the miracles of Christ so that those who read the story will believe in him and have everlasting life. It is, its symbol is a rising eagle. So now you have four symbols. These four symbols from these Gospels are actually taken from the first prophet Ezekiel. And that shows up in chapter 1, 1 through 21. In the, thir- in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the four month, or fourth month, while I was among the exiles by the river Chebar, the heavens opened up and I saw divine visions. As I looked up, a storm wind came from the north, a huge cloud with flashing fire, from the midst of which something gleamed like electrum. Within it were figures resembling the four living creatures that looked like this. Their form was human, but each had four faces, four wings, and their legs went straight down. With The soles of their feet were round. They sparkled with a gleam of burnished bronze. Their faces were like this. Each of the four had a face of a man, but on the right side of the face was a lion. On the left side of the face, an ox. And finally... Each had the face of an eagle. So those four living creatures are the four Gospels. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? In the book of Revelation, we find a similar description. Um, Revelation 4, 6 through 8. Surrounding this, uh, surrounding this throne were 24 other thrones upon which there were seated 24 elders. They were each clothed in white garments and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and pearls of thunder. Before it burned seven flaming torches, the seven spirits of God. The floor around the throne was like a sea of glass that was crystal clear. And at the very center, around the throne itself, stood four living creatures covered with eyes front and back. The first resembled a lion, the second an ox, the third face a man, and the fourth Look like an eagle in flight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and eyes all over, inside and out. Day and night, without pause, they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, he who was and who is and who is to come. So that's pretty amazing that the four living creatures were prophesied in Ezekiel and are prophesied to be coming in the future when the return of Christ happens. And those four represent the gospel. And so these all tie into, it, it's amazing. When you look back at what happened right after Eve took from the tree of fruit of, you know, the knowledge of good and evil and ate the fruit, and then Adam in turn ate it, you see that Genesis 3.14 and 3.15 ties together with John 3.16 and 3.17. It's crazy. So you get this establishment of what's to come in the first book of the Bible, and then in the first gospel that shows, well, it's the fourth gospel, but the first gospel that shows Christ as God, you get the remaining passages. So if you were to read it, it would go from Genesis 3.14, 3.15, Cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals, talking about the serpent. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Now go back to Genesis 3.15. And between your seed and her seed. Women don't have seeds. They have eggs. What the, what the description here is implying is the immaculate conception. That she will have a seed put upon her. Because women can't have seeds. They have, egg. they have eggs. Eggs are fertilized by the seed. So that's pretty amazing that he's basically saying, on the way, the Christ child will come and will destroy he will bruise your head and shall, and he will bruise his heel in the process. So he will be crucified. You know, he'll be injured, which he was, you know, killed, but he was resurrected and he will destroy evil in the process. And this was all predicted in the test in the old Testament by Isaiah written approximately 740 
to maybe 701 BC. So this is way back. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel. So you consider the opening words of the New Testament um, that Jesus descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had many sons by three women. Isaac had two sons. Jacob had 12 sons. When Moses wrote the genealogy of Jesus, it's probably 1,500 years before Christ. Moses couldn't possibly have known the future of his own. And Jacob's prophecy for his 12 sons is utterly amazing because especially um, the one designated Judah as the royal line is what he did. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes or until he comes to whom it belongs. That was Genesis 49:10. And that's about Christ nearly 2000 years before Christ. It's pretty amazing. And so we have to also look at the fact that things were put into motion that God used for his glory. One of the things was the establishment of the Roman Empire. And at a very certain point, an empire of, you know, I wouldn't say global size, but of a very incredible size. If you look into Revelations, whenever they talk about uh, the beast, they talk about kingdoms, kingdoms or, you know, empires, earthly empires are the beasts. They say that the Roman Empire was a beast or the British Empire for which the sun never set was a beast, you know, go back through history and those are beasts and the horns of the beast are the political leaders that ran those empires. And so Caesar Augustus decides he's going to declare that everybody got, has to travel to Bethlehem so that they can all be, uh, you know, registered. And they were going to do that so that they could collect taxes. And that forces John and Mary to go to Bethlehem. And when they're going to Bethlehem, they're going at a time when all of the shepherds in the region were bringing sacrificial lambs so that they could be crucified at the temple. And so we get into the significance of the shepherds, because the significance of the shepherds is the same reason why it's a heavy significance on who came before Jesus, John the Baptist, six months before, you know, when the angel appeared before Mary, Gabriel said, hey, look, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which she wasn't supposed to have children, she was barren, and yet God provided, which he would lead the way, he would be the one who laid the groundwork for Jesus's ministry, John the Baptist, or the baptizer, John the immerser. Um, that's when the conception of Christ would come, with the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, Mary. And it's crazy because when Mary was pregnant and went back to her sister, John the Baptist leapt in the womb knowing the presence of Christ was nearby. It's pretty amazing. But John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, John the Immerser, he was from the Levite line. The, the Levite priests are the ones that can determine this is the sacrificial lamb. They inspect the lambs. They look at it and say, there's no blemish here. And the only, only line that can do that is the Levites. That's why it's very significant that when, when Jesus is coming to start his ministry and he's walking and he sees John the Baptist, John the Baptist looks at him and points and declares, behold, the sacrificial lamb, I'll pull up the scripture here in a minute. I'm kind of jumping ahead of my notes, but basically he's, he is proclaiming and using his Levite priest status or abilities to go that's the sacrificial lamb, just like they do with all the ones that they bring in the temple that have to be completely unblemished, they have to be absolutely perfect. And so we'll get into the significance of the sacrificial lamb. And because Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, the reason why he was being pulled to Bethlehem was bigger than just Caesar's census for taxes. It forced a bigger plan to roll into motion. So when we look at things like, you know, when people say, oh, well, Trump, you know, the, God didn't just use him. God could have used him. Yeah, God can use anything. If you look in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet's lamenting the fact that this world is so evil and what have you. And God says, hey, don't worry. I'm going to use Babylonians to come in and destroy these evil people. And then because the Babylonians are evil, I'm going to destroy them too. 
So he can use anything for his glory. And this was being used to push Joseph and Mary into Bethlehem for the right time. So let's get into the Levite shepherds, right? So basically, just about nine, what, six miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And it was there that in those hills, sheep grazed, shepherds kept watch, newborn lambs were chosen and set apart. And these distinct lambs were born in Bethlehem. They were predestined to be offered as a Passover sacrifice at the temple. So that's the thing is during this time, all of these shepherds were bringing all of these lambs down, royal lambs, basically, unblemished, um, all at the same time so that they can be offered at Passover at the temple. So in a manner of speaking, these were royal lambs, handpicked, approved for a task only a privileged few would have been able to do. So yeah, there's other towns who raised other lambs, but it was only in Bethlehem that they birthed the lambs pure and special you know, enough to be considered worthy of giving their life as a sacrifice to the Lord. So that's also why, you know, they say, well, the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, they did that to the sacrificial lambs. You know, they wrapped them up so that they wouldn't blemish themselves by kicking around and what have you. So they wrapped them tight in these, these bits of cloth. And that's what they did with Jesus. Um, so it's by no coincidence that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was also born in the same town as the sacrificial lambs. In fact, the place of Jesus' birth was prophesied in the book of Micah about 700 years before it even came to pass. In Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratitat, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come the one for me, one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from the old from the ancient times. So the shepherds there were to bring those unblemished lambs to the holy sacrifice. And Micah is kind of telling you that's going to happen in Bethlehem. So when people dispute this, you have to realize that there are certain things that kind of keep it beyond reproach. You know, according to Jewish tradition, it would have been forbidden to keep any sheep that near to Jerusalem or even Bethlehem, which of course was the city of David, the line of which Jesus's bloodline comes from. So they were called Levitical shepherds. They had been chosen and trained to attend the flock of sheep that were to be used in the sacrificial lambs of the temple. Sacrificial lambs had to be spotless and without blemish. They required special treatment and observing. According to the laws of the time, the sheep that were used for the offerings had to be one-year-old male sheep and that had to have been outside of 365 days. And when they were ready, they were to be taken from Jerusalem to be sacrificed on the Sabbath in the temple. And when the mother you was preparing to give birth, she was taken a special birthplace or to the only cave designated to give birth to the sacrificial lamb. This cave was kept sterile and clean for the arrival of the newborn sacrificial lambs. The newborn lambs were immediately wrapped in clean swaddling clothes. See, it's interesting when they talk about the cave, because when you talk about the inn, the, the manger that Jesus was born in, a lot of uh, theologians and historians have said that it wasn't this little barn like we have in the nativity sets. It was basically a cave. And the feeding trough was a part of the setup in the cave where, you know, the lambs went to graze. And so that's where Jesus was laid, in that trough, in that cave-like structure. Um, so swaddling clothes described in the Bible consisted of cloth tied together like bandage-like strips. And when the declaration was made that these Levitical shepherds that watched their sheep in special uh, fields full of sacrificial lambs, when that declaration was made, they apparently knew exactly where to go to discover the baby. They were, uh, there were apparently many places that held mangers, but they comprehended immediately where to go to find the babe, to their cave, where their sacrificial lambs were born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, which is amazing how all this comes together. So uh, the manger. Now, when it comes to the birth of Christ, the Bible isn't specific in telling us exactly where Jesus was born. Scripture does not say he was born in some backyard stable of the hotel that was full or in, some, uh, in a cave where a few donkeys were housed. All that we know is what Luke tells us, that Mary placed him in a manger 
because there was no room for them in the end. And that's the reason why there was no room. They were all coming in for Passover and for the census, um, you know, the Passover uh, raising of these lambs. The word manger used here also meant stall. So the manger may not have been a tiny wooden bassinet-like piece of furniture that we see displayed in the nativity scenes, but instead it could just meant that he was born in a Migdal Erder. So throughout Jesus' birth and all the way up to his death and resurrection and ascension, um, there were laws born out of Leviticus that basically grew into Jewish traditions. Now, Jesus didn't come through and just dunk on those. He actually fulfilled them because he is the fulfillment of the law, fulfillment of Leviticus, um, what was given to, uh, given to Moses. And, and that's the thing, the fulfillment of the law happened in ways that those following the traditions didn't recognize, or, or maybe they just didn't have the comprehension. You know I mean? It's bigger than what they thought. They thought they knew, but it's didn't come in the way that they imagined. And one of those were regulations involving childbirth. So Mary and Joseph are completing the required purification, which shows up in Leviticus 12. And this cleansing is not an atonement for sin, but a symbolic restoration of purity. So by law, those who could afford a lamb were required to offer one, in addition to a bird for purification sacrifice. Those unable to afford a lamb could bring two birds rather than just one. According to uh, this passage, Joseph and Mary were poor enough that they fall into the latter category, they offer up a pair of birds to fulfill the requirements, which shows up in Luke 2.24. Their act not only satisfies ceremonial purity, but it also obeys the instructions that were given at Israel's exodus from Egypt that firstborn were to be consecrated to God, which is in Exodus 13.1 through 2. Okay, so let's jump ahead a little bit, because like I said, I was going to take you from Christmas to, well, through the new year, to Easter. And so we want to think about what happened when Jesus started into his ministry. And it's amazing because first, after being baptized, he goes, you know, John the Baptist, the Levite uh, priest, John the Immerser, he declares Jesus the sacrificial lamb of God, baptizes him, and then... Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested by Satan, and, uh, you know, he passes that, obviously. But still, it was a, a trying time for Christ in the wilderness. And so then, after he goes through that trial and tribulation, he goes back to where he was born in Nazareth, rolls into the temple. This is where Jesus was like a boss. He just rolled into the temple and in Luke 4, 17 through 21, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the piece where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. And he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and that's when he stopped and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's when his ministry began. In fact, all those people in there were like, who is this dude? How does he get to say he gets to do that? This is blasphemous. And that's something that followed Christ through his entire uh, ministry up until his death and resurrection. So that it's really interesting because there's a lot of symbolic things that happen that when you really get down to the details, you go, wow, this is more, it has more weight. It has more significance. And these little things, these little details make it more real. Like when Jesus was going back in to Jerusalem, he rode on a young donkey that no one had ridden before. That's from Luke 19.30. So here's the thing. Most rulers or mo most leaders, conquerors, kings, they rolled in on horses. And everyone assumed that in the scriptures that the Messiah would come to reclaim Jerusalem, reclaim the Jewish empire, 
And so they're thinking this guy's going to roll in and slaughter all these Roman uh, military people, maybe take out the Roman leaders. And so for that, for that to be the case, he would roll in on a horse. Well, Jesus didn't. He rolled in on a donkey, which was a symbol. Uh, it symbolizes peace. This created a particular scene contrary to the usual majestic processions, which often accompany kings in those days. This naturally raises the question, well, why did Jesus ride a donkey? Um, as we should expect, this was intentional. There is much divine meaning embedded in the fact that Jesus made a young, or rode a young donkey, and we can point to at least three significant factors. First, Jesus is king. It's important to note that in this passage, Jesus is accepting his title as king of the Jews. He enters Jerusalem, the city of David, which is the bloodline of Jesus, going all the way back to Abraham, and the city of kings. Upon their coronation, kings would commonly ride in on, on a mount to distinguish themselves from the rest of the people. Jesus did not ride just any donkey. He chose to ride a colt that no one had ever ridden. It was an honor for Jesus to be the first to ride this colt. This is part of his public acknowledgement that he was their king. And Jesus came as a king of peace, which was portrayed in Revelations 19, would have been closer to what the Jews anticipated. Horses were majestic animals, and in Revelation 19, Jesus rides in on a horse, and often the choice mount of a king. They symbolize majesty and power. They were also beasts of war. Whenever a king rode out to meet his enemy in battle, he would do so on a horse. The Jews were hoping for a conquering king, one who would push back against the armies of Rome and establish Israel to its own independent rule. Jesus' selection of a donkey communicated the exact opposite. He did not come to wage war against Rome as the people hoped, but instead he came to bring peace proclaimed by angels upon his birth. Luke 2.4, this peace was not between hostile nations. Instead, it was a peace between sinful people and God. And see, take a second to think about Peter. Because everyone says, well, Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus said that he would. Peter's like, I would never deny you. But in the moment, and I remember my pastor saying this, and when I thought about it, I was like, you know, we didn't have the hindsight of the Bible to give us the big scope of what was happening here. So if you think about it, the disciples are thinking this king of the Jews is going to reclaim the Jewish kingdom from the Romans, and Jesus is confronted to where he ends up offering himself over to be jailed, to be imprisoned. And Peter's standing there with them thinking, I thought this guy was, you know, he's, Peter slices off the ear of one of the guards with his sword. He's thinking, Peter's thinking that Jesus is going to rise up and just take these cats down. But that doesn't happen. He gives himself over to be, to be imprisoned. And Peter's looking around going, uh, what just happened? And I think that fear, the fact that everything he knew is now upended, was probably why when they confronted him, he said, I don't know that guy. <laughs> and, and that's where, you know, when you put it into that context, you realize Peter wasn't just outright denying him because he's like, I don't, I don't know that guy. He was doing it out of fear. Which, you know, Peter was always the doubting type. <laughs> but going back to the significance of the donkey and the cult, Jesus was not a king the people wanted. Peer pressure can be one of the hardest forces to oppose. It preys on our innate desire as social creatures to maintain a level of respect and acceptance among our peers. It can be difficult to recover one's public image after they upset the masses' expectations. Despite the potent nature of peer pressure or mob rule, God made it clear the majority rule does not determine what is right or wrong. Deuteronomy 23.2, the expectations of the people did not sway Jesus. He did not adjust himself to fit the pressing desires of people who earnestly hoped for a military conqueror that would oppose and ultimately overthrow the Roman oppressor. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, only Matthew's gospel mentions that Jesus brought both a donkey and a cult with him when he entered uh, Jerusalem. Furthermore, as other gospels show, Jesus chose to ride the cult instead of the mature donkey. In Luke, it's referenced in Luke 19.35. But why did Jesus ride a donkey specifically? 
The answer had to do with the uh, fulfilling of messianic prophecies. Matthew's gospel was geared towards a Jewish audience and takes special care to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. In keeping with the gospel's over, overall focus, Matthew purposefully mentioned the donkey and the cult to show that Jesus fulfilled a messianic prophecy which was laid out in Zechariah. Quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that's from Zechariah 9.9. Since this prophecy mentions both a donkey and a colt, Matthew included the detail of Jesus bringing the colt's mother along so that there could be no doubt that Jesus fulfilled his prophecy. Genesis 49.10, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs shall come. He ties his donkey to a vine and the cult of his donkey to the choice vine, Genesis 49.11. That's why Jesus needed both the donkey and the cult. They fulfilled this prophecy of Jesus' words and Jesus' plan. And what is the vine? Well, God tied the law of the Old Testament to God's people of the Old Testament, the Jews. But the cult, the new covenant, for which no one had ridden this cult, which imagine trying to get on a cult that no one's ridden before, yet Jesus just hopped on and rolled, is for the choicest of God's people, for you and me, for the church. See now why the cult had never been saddled? The new covenant comes only with Christ on board. Religions before and after claim ways to God, but salvation is all about Jesus and him alone. So Jesus uh, was crucified in the same area to which Isaac was supposed to be crucified when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it was the same bloodline as King David and eventually Jesus. So Abraham, who would beget Isaac, who would eventually go down through the bloodline to King David and eventually to Jesus. You know, Isaac was going to be sacrificed. In Genesis 22-2, it said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, Isaac, a, uh, a symbol of Christ, rides a donkey to be slain by his father Abraham on an altar in Genesis 22.3. Isaac even carried wood for the burnt offering on his back in a manner that was similar to Jesus carrying the cross. That's amazing. And this happened centuries before Christ ever came. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of the ornate of Jebusit. So is Golgotha Hill, where Christ was crucified, and Mount Moriah the same? There is discourse surrounding whether Golgotha Hill and Mount Moriah are the same, but some firmly believe that they are. The overwhelming consensus is that they are the same, while at the very least most people agree that they're nearby one another. The important connection between Jesus and Isaac is not simply the geography, but it is the theological connections between Isaac and Jesus that should grab the attention. There are a number of parallels between Isaac and Jesus that are too interesting not to take note of. First, Isaac, a miracle baby, born to a barren woman, too old to conceive. You know, that's where you get into Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was born to Sarah, um, if you remember, Abraham gave birth to Ishmael out of wedlock because he did not trust God's plan. And apparently that was the bloodline to kick off Islam. A wild and kicking donkey would be the bloodline of Ishmael. And that is a wild and kicking donkey. I don't know about you. But then the miracle baby Isaac was born from someone who should not have been able to conceive. Well, Jesus was a miracle baby as well, born to a virgin. Isaac was the, uh, was the only son, same as Jesus, in the bloodline. Figuratively, he was dead for three days in Genesis 22.4 and in Hebrews 
same as Jesus, dead for three days, accompanied by two servants. Um, of course, Jesus was accompanied by two criminals. Uh, carried the wood for a sacrifice, just as Jesus carried his cross. Isaac willingly submitted, same as Jesus. He was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, same as Jesus. Figuratively brought back from the dead, same as Jesus. It's pretty amazing. Abraham was preparing to kill Isaac. God stopped him, acknowledges that Abraham's abiding faith was strong in him, and gave a ram as a uh, substitutionary sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham received his son back from the dead. Abraham's words about a lamb that God would provide, however, wouldn't come true until thousands of years later. So in the translation, basically, in the, I think in the Greek translation, it just basically says that Abraham considered his son dead because he went to go sacrifice him because of his faith. God would use the lamb to speak to his future goal when he instructed Moses to institute the feast of Passover. The enslaved Israelites sprinkled blood of the lamb on the doors and were protected as, ju as God judged the gods of Egypt. Jews are commemorating this unforge uh, unforgettable deliverance by Yahweh around the world at that time. So then we get into Pentecost. So then Christ was crucified. He rose from the dead. And then he was with them for a period of time. And then when you get into Pentecost, see, these are all fulfillments of the law. There's a lot of things that Jesus does that land on certain landmark dates of religious ceremonies that the Jews had. And they got those ceremonies from Leviticus. And some of them, you know, they've kind of taken and gone a little further with. But Jesus found a way to commemorate those things with his own uh, actions. And these actions show that there is a fulfillment of the law. It's not like he came in and just desecrated their religious holidays and religious ceremonies because on this day something Jesus would do would happen. He did it as a fulfillment. Forty days, showed, uh, Jesus showed the world that he lived again. The Sanhedrin had called Jesus a blasphemer, and others claimed his miracles were of the devil, but his 40 days in Jerusalem and surrounding areas being seen by the multitudes was scarcely disputed. The contemporary Jewish historian Josephus referred to it as other writers did. Two generations later, um, the writer Eusebius interviewed many people who had known people who had seen Jesus during these days, told of miracles, even cited sermons and letters of the risen Jesus. In other words, some people might have joined Christ's followers, although believers multiplied rapidly, even in the face of persecution soon after. But very few people disputed that he rose from the dead. The number 40 appears 146 times in the Bible, a number of God's significance. We think of Noah, of the years in the wilderness. You know, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Noah, 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> of the days of Moses, when he was on, on the mount of Jonah, Nineveh. And in Jesus' case, the number of days he was tempted by the devil and the number of days between the resurrection and the ascension. Usually, this number signifies testing, trials, probation, or a provision of prosperity. We must believe that the last comes closest to the risen Lord's season before he ascended. They certainly were active days. In the last verse of the last gospel's book, John 21-25 tells us, quote, Jesus also did many other things, if they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So the next holy day in Israel's calendar was the Festival of Weeks, also known as Shavat in Hebrew, which was originally a harvest festival. Later, the day was also used to commemorate the giving of the Law of Moses at Mount Sinai. This is important. The weeks comes from an expression in Leviticus 23.16, which instructs the Israelites to count seven weeks or 49 days from the end of Passover to the beginning of the next feast in their annual cycle of holy days. The English word Pentecost comes from a Greek deriv derivation of the word meaning 50 or 50th day. The Holy Spirit began giving on the same day that the law of Moses was given by God shows the fulfillment of the law, the sacrificial crucifixion. So on 
the 50th day, God fills them with the Holy Spirit. And that is the same time, same place that God issued the Ten Commandments. It's amazing. The commotion surrounding Pentecost didn't go unnoticed. Rumors started spreading through the streets of Jerusalem. The crowds started gathering in the area just west of the temple complex. At some point, Peter moved to the front of the crowd, and with his newfound boldness, after he denied Christ three times, and then he was you know, met by Christ later, um, he raised his voice, began addressing the curious crowd, delivering what many concern, uh, consider his first sermon. Peter started with the background that would be familiar to his audience. He referenced Hebrew prophecy and God's promise to pour out his spirit as a sign of the coming day of the Lord. Peter then connected what everyone had just witnessed to the fulfillment of God's centuries of old promise. He went on to declare other promises to Israelites, including the long-awaited Messiah taking the throne of King David. Peter again connected these promises to Jesus, who they had crucified, but who God had raised from the dead. It gets even more insane when you look at what happened here. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's Acts 2, 38 and 39. So here's the amazing part. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled the church with power and added 3,000 new believers, keep that in mind, 3,000 new believers added to the Christian church through Pentecost, the issuance of the Holy Spirit, a restoration that links to Exodus 32, 25 through 59. So if you think about it, Moses, he goes up on the mount, he gets the, the, the law, you know, the Ten Commandments. Moses called for those who were with him to stand up on the Lord's behalf. The Levites did so, and then they were ordered to go through the camp. So Moses comes down off the mountain, and when he gets down there, he's like, uh, what's happening? And they're all out there worshiping the golden calf. They made this golden calf. They're worshiping the golden calf. Aaron's rolling around going, I don't know what's going on here. These people started doing all this. And at that point, they were ordered by God to go through the camp and kill those who were connected to the idolatry, which is Baal, which is what we're seeing with Balenciaga, which is what we're seeing with Gaia, the, the worship of climate change and Mother Earth, the worship of Moloch, the worship of abortion. And we're seeing all of these different iterations of Baal or Baal, however you want to call them, in modern times. Well, they were doing that back then. That's why I say there's nothing new under the sun. They were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping the golden calf. And the Lord commanded Moses and his crew, the Levites, the Levite shepherds, the Levite priest, John the Baptist, the ones who were given authority to do things on a higher level. The Levites joined Moses to go through, they were ordered to go through the camp and kill those who were connected to the idolatry, resulting in 3,000 Israelites being killed. Moses then urged the people to dedicate themselves to the Lord once again. So Moses saw that the people had built the golden calf. Um, they were out of control. Hebrews word for quote, out of control was para, which means let loose allowed to run wild. We see that in our society right now, right? Drag queen story time. We've got pride week. We've got theft and shoplifting run amok crime. They were, they were given over to their own desires, right? That's Romans one. That's what we're seeing right now. They were allowed to run wild or neglect as Proverbs one twenty five says the only other place this word is used with the same verb is in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, people are unrestrained. And the people got this way because Aaron let him get out of control. He was a horrible leader. <laughs> um, it was, you know, Aaron was the high priest of the Lord. He allowed these people to not only go out and create a golden calf idol, but to engage in immorality as acts of worship to this idol. This would be derision, a similar word translated to whisper in Job 4.12 among other nations, because Israel was supposed to be different, worshiping the Lord, 
and him only. By adopting pagan practices, they would show that they were no different than the Egyptians and any other people of the ancient Near East. And so, in the Old Testament, the law is delivered. Moses comes down to bring the law to the people. The people are worshiping golden calves. 3,000 are killed. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came down from the mount and was ushered upon the people, just like the law. The fulfillment of the law came down. And 3,000 Christians were restored. That's amazing. That's a tie together like none other. And so there's all these different significant acts throughout the Bible that we have to recognize that make the Bible even more significant. They add more richness, more levity to it. And we don't want to think about what we just went through for Christmas to go, oh, you know, there was shepherds and there were some angels and he was put in a manger because, you know, they didn't want him in the end. And there's more significance to why all of that happened. And it goes through all the way through Jesus's ministry, all the way through his his uh, death and resurrection, his crucifixion. These are This is my, it's not my gift to you, it's actually God's gift to us. But I wanted to kind of put some significance into it in my, uh, well, this may be the final podcast for 2022, we'll see. I may eke out another one before the new year if things come down, because we're learning now that the DOJ, the FBI, all of those involved, CIA, NSA with Twitter, um, not only used it to conduct propaganda against other foreign nations, most notably Middle Eastern nations, um, also used it to sow division in our, our domestic politics, but also we're now involved with destroying COVID truth and suppressing COVID truth. And so while they're out there thinking they can suppress truth through different means, there is no suppressing this truth. And if we get deeper into the truth, the truth makes even more sense. So I wanted to give that to you. Merry belated Christmas, because this is after Christmas, but Happy New Year, and we're going to go into 2023 with God on our side. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You can check it out, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart. You can also check us out at adriansladeshow.com. You can support us financially. That would be helpful. Anchor.fm slash Adrian Slade slash support. The Roku channel is no more, but that's okay. It really wasn't that much of an asset to the whole show. Um, it was a cool little thing to do on the side, a little experiment of mine. But really, when it comes down to it, the podcast platform works more notably through the ones that I just showed you. And if you could go and rate the podcast, that'd be great. Give us five-star rating, and uh, we'll see you guys next time.